Welcome, and thank you for joining us online. Today's message is going to be a little different from other messages in the series. Given the current state of our world and issues that have risen to prominence in the media, it is impossible for us to continue with business as usual. I, along with others across our nation and around the world, are in a state of mourning. I am a 29-year-old Black American man and I'm married to a 29-year-old Black Latina American woman. I have multiple degrees from two prestigious universities, Carnegie Mellon and Johns Hopkins, and I'm working on my doctorate degree. I pay taxes, I own a home, I am a productive and contributing member of society. But in all the ways my family and I contribute to the American way of life, I struggle with the reality that racism, prejudice, and discrimination are still alive and well in our country. Black people in America are not treated equally, nor are they afforded the same opportunities as white people in America. We are subjected to negative stereotypes and biases that are embedded in the fabric of the American society, resulting in mistreatment, systemic oppression, and disproportionate acts of violence against people of color. I have seen and heard the lost lives and voices of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and the lost before them, Tamir Rice, Eric Gardner, Trayvon Martin, Oscar Grant, Philando Castile, and the lost before them. And I, I am in mourning. With every death and mistreatment of a person of color captured on video or reported on the news, it feels like history repeating itself. The history of racism in this country has deep roots. Beginning with the diaspora of Africans who were brought to America and forced into slave labor and bought and sold as property, to the ratification of the Constitution in 1789, where black people were only considered three three-fifths of a person. From the adoption of the 13th Amendment in 1865 that justified slavery as a punishment for a crime, to the introduction of Jim Crow laws to enforce racial segregation. But racism didn't just exist back then. It still exists now. Through the civil rights movement of the 1960s, black people gained the ability to vote and schools were desegregated. But voter registration laws still discriminate against minorities, making it hard, if not impossible, for us to vote. And de facto segregation still groups people of color together and often in underprivileged communities. The incarceration rates of people of color in America greatly exceeds that of white Americans and often for nonviolent offenses. Black people make up 13% of the US population but represent over 40% of those in prison. Statistically speaking, black people are five times more likely than white people to be in prison 
not because they commit more crimes, but because they aren't looked upon favorably by the American justice system. I won't even get into the number of innocent black people who are wrongly imprisoned because of inaccurate eyewitness testimony or because they were forced to take a plea deal or because they couldn't afford good legal representation. This is coupled with denial of government resources, redlining to black communities, hiring discrimination, presumption of guilt, implicit bias, racist jokes, the list goes on and on. Racism is still here. Why am I saying all of this? It is not to condemn every white person in America. It's not to tell you that you are a racist. It's not to start a political debate or tell you which political party you should be a part of or how you should think. My goal is to shed light on a systemic problem that we as a nation still deal with today and come to understand what God says about addressing it. As a black American, I'm aware of these issues and I have lived with them across my lifetime and I still encounter them today. So here's a little bit about my own personal experiences. The first time I was called the derogatory N-word was when I was six years old at Disney World, the happiest place on earth, by an adult white male. My first time being on the opposite end of a police officer's weapon was at 13 years old in the bedroom of my house at 6 a.m in the morning on a faulty warrant for someone who didn't live there. I've been pulled over without cause. I've been asked to get up from tables at restaurants and leave. I've been accused and punished for acts I've never committed. And I've been spat on, all because of the color of my skin. People cross the street and run away when they see me at night, clutch the per their purses when I get on elevators. Follow me around stores, stare at me like I'm a novel occurrence or someone to be watched. Sometimes people just go out of their way to give unkind remarks. And I used to think these were just my experiences and I could toughen up. I could learn not to be nervous every time I encounter a white police officer. Hands 10 and two when I get pulled over. Have everything ready and announce the moves that I'm gonna make. I could learn not to be angry when unsolicited comments are given. I could learn not to feel deprived by not being able to have the same privileges as my white friends. Something as simple as taking a walk in a neighborhood where I do not live. I could tell myself not to feel less deserving when I'm paid less than my white counterparts for the same work. I could try not to feel annoyed when an employer capitalized on my blackness for their gain. I could practice not feeling overwhelmed when asked to speak for all black people. Yet with every video that is realized, every video that's released, I realize more and more that I'm one of the lucky black Americans. One of the lucky black Americans that has not been subject to the extreme reality of losing my life. But here I thought life was a right and not a privilege. At least that's what the Declaration of Independence says. It says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. 
that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Yet with all these things I have learned, I cannot seem to grasp how not to be fearful and ashamed of what this world, our world, is offering to my younger sisters and my brother, to my nephews and my nieces, to my godchildren and my mentees, and to my own future children. I mourn for them. I grieve for them. I feel sorrow, anger, rage, disappointment, and overall pain in my heart. And I'm not okay. I don't know if you can identify, but I'm not okay. I found myself reading the book of Psalms this week. It is said that nearly 70% of the Psalms written are poems of lament and sorrow. And I began to wonder what God feels about our nation's mourning. And I came across this in Psalms 9, 7 through 8, which remarks, but the Lord reigns forever, executing judgment from his throne. He will judge the world with justice and rule the nations with fairness. I read this and I realized in our sorrow, we can come to understand what justice and fairness mean to our God. And we'll find that regardless of political, philosophical, or ideological differences, that pretty early on in the Bible, God states his feelings towards justice and fairness in speaking about Abraham, the father of all nations. In Genesis 18, 19, God says, I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Here we see that God not only has a feeling about justice and fairness, but that righteousness and justice are God's way of living. This is the method he upholds. The Hebrew word for righteousness here, it's tzedekah. It is an ethical standard that refers to having right relationships between people. It focuses on treating others as the image of God. This is to treat others equally with dignity and with honor. We find it in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. God commands, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then there was an action. God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created. We, every person on this earth, are all created equally by God in his image, deserving to be treated with dignity and honor. This is Sedekah rightness with God. To honor that we are all his creation made in his image. To disrespect each other and to not see each other equally is to disrespect our God's work we'll find that this helps make sense of how Jesus responds to a Jewish law teacher's question in Luke 10. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The response that Jesus affirmed was correct, was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, do this and you will live. This means to love God 
who created each and every one of us is to treat each other equally with dignity and honor. This is God's way of life. God also used the word justice in talking about his way of life. The word for justice is mishpat. In the Bible, mishpat typically refers to restorative justice. This means to take additional steps beyond assigning punishment for wrongdoing and seeking out the people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. It alludes to taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. According to mishpat justice, Punishment as a response to injustice is necessary to reinforce upholding dignity as we as humans made in God's image. But mishpat justice also finds ways to improve social systems and prevent injustice from happening again in the same way. We can see this more clearly in the story Jesus tells the same teacher in Luke 10. When the teacher clarifies with a question, who is my neighbor? Jesus replies in Luke 10, 30 through 35, he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw, and saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he didn't pass on the other side. He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The traveler, the Samaritan, Modeling God's way of life went out of his way to feel what the man felt, bandage his wounds, and treat him like an equal human being. He honored God's creation through pouring on of wine and oil. And this Samaritan didn't stop there. He began to fix the system that left this man vulnerable and laying in the road. The Samaritan, he paid for his housing. He taught the innkeepers what it meant to look after someone else by requesting that he look after this man and he relieved him of the burden of all this man's expenses. The Samaritan did something that was even more uncommon. He said he would return to see about him. He became a partner for this man and the obstacles he faced. Together, Sedeka righteousness and Mishpat justice make up the way of life God calls us to. We can see it in many other scriptures. Proverbs 31, eight and nine says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. 
In Jeremiah 22, 3, God says, Do what is fair and right. Save the one who has been robbed from power of his attacker. Don't mistreat or hurt the foreigners, orphans, or widows. Don't kill innocent people here. Psalm 146, 7 through 9 declares, He does what is fair for those who have been wronged. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up people who are in trouble. The Lord loves those who do right. The Lord protects the foreigners. He defends the orphans and widows, but he blocks the way of the wicked. And it is important to note that wicked here is referring to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. Righteousness and justice are not just God's way of life. It's the way of life God is calling us to. And I must say this, this for all of us. It is important to note that yes, some people perpetuate injustice, while others, ben while others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. But it has been shown throughout history that when the oppressed gain power, they often too become the oppressors themselves. In Luke 10, we find a priest and a Levite who come from a lineage of enslaved Israelites, especially at the hands of the Egyptians. These are the people who turn away from this dying man. And it's even more interesting that the one who modeled being a neighbor who modeled righteousness and justice was the Samaritan, a race considered by the Jews at the time to be non-equal. The very ones who were subject to injustice also can turn a blind eye to injustice against others. We must recognize we are all vulnerable to participating in injustice, whether actively or passively, no one is immune. And this is where our post-resurrection encounters with Jesus come in. As a response to our humanity's injustice, God presented Jesus as a gift to us. Jesus lived carrying righteousness and justice everywhere with him. He died on behalf of the guilty. Yet when he rose from the dead, God declared Jesus to be the righteous one. Now Jesus offers his life to the guilty all of us who are vulnerable to participating in injustice, actively or passively, and to the ones who have also been oppressed. Jesus also offers his life so we can all be declared righteous before God, not because of what we have done, but what Jesus has done for us. The disciples and the earliest followers of Jesus experienced the righteousness of God not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in new and surprising ways. In a post-resurrection encounter in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we see Jesus challenging the disciples by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. 
And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is sending the followers to spread the message of his righteousness as a gift to every person in every nation upon the earth. The gift of his life is meant for all made in his image, every human. Let us also note that he said, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, which includes living God's way through righteousness and justice. In, those, in this commission, entrusting his followers with authority, Jesus also recognizes the importance of them being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We learn from Jesus in Acts 1-8 that this baptism or dedication is the followers receiving power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and they will become Jesus's witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The followers experienced the righteousness of God as a power that compelled them to act in surprising ways, including on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus's resurrection. We'll pick it up in Acts 2.4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at the sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one of them was heard speaking in the native language of each of them. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamitites, and residents in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? They experienced God's righteousness through the Holy Spirit and communicated Jesus' offer of life to the guilty so that all can be declared righteous before God. How do we know this? Because Peter speaks up. He says in Acts 2.36, Therefore let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter acknowledged the injustice done to Jesus, but recognized God gave Jesus as a gift of righteousness for all made in the image of God, all humans to be treated right and with dignity. Now, this is the same gift that Jesus offers us. It doesn't take anything but believing that Jesus died to make us right, where we are not. And if you ask him today, he will give you this gift. As we conclude, you may realize with me that somehow we've gotten off. We've turned from the right path of treating each other with equality and dignity we find ourselves with injustice all around us. We need to look to God as our roadmap for restoration and justice. So what are our actions? First, we need to know that God created all humans in his image 
And therefore, we are made to be righteous. We were made to treat each other with respect and dignity and honor as we acknowledge the great God that created each of us. In a letter written by the U.S. Catholic bishops in 1992, they said this, no society can live in peace with itself or with the world without a full awareness of the worth and dignity of every human person. Secondly, we must recognize injustice. Aldous Huxley, an English writer and philosopher in 1929, wrote this. Facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored. Well, it goes the same for injustice. Injustice does not cease to exist because it is ignored. We must recognize the wrongful treatment of others instead of turning a blind eye. We see countless stories in the Bibles like the Good Samaritan, where God calls his followers to be the one human, the one human who stops to help another. And to those feeling oppressed by injustice, Psalm 9, 9 through 10 tells us, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. And going back to God's commission, he says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Be encouraged. God is with you. Third, there must be retribution. There must be payback towards the offended party, not just recognition for, for what has been done, but as reinforcement of just standards. Grace cannot go forward without truth. They work together. Proverbs 3.12 says this, the Lord corrects those he loves, just as parents correct the child they delight in. Fourth, we must work for mishpat justice by finding ways to improve the social systems and prevent injustice from happening again, just like the Samaritan. Lastly, we must think how we are journeying towards fulfilling God's mission for us through righteousness and justice in our disposition, how we act. We must all be self-aware, understanding we are all, we are all being made perfect. We have not arrived yet. We must know what is good in us, but also know what flaws reside inside of us. C.S. Lewis said it like this in 1952, the right direction leads not only to peace, but to knowledge. When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. And he goes on to say, you understand sleep when you are awake, not while you are sleeping. It is time to be self-aware. We not only have good inside of each of us, we have flaws as well. We must learn to be open-minded. We have to realize that we do not know everything and that there are still things for us to learn. So instead of making assumptions, we need to ask questions first and see if we have a full picture of what someone else is going through. Then we can engage in discussion.
And finally, we must learn empathy. We must learn how to relate to one another. This is to be less self-minded and to focus on how someone else feels and what it's like to be in their shoes. We might find that in our humanity, we can learn to be present and that we can learn to stand for one another. I leave you with this final verse of scripture. I hope that we can meditate on this. Micah 6, 8 says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Well, he requires to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I love you and may blessings be upon you, your family, and all of our generations to come. God bless you. Thanks again for joining us online. We know that today's message was on a heavy topic and one that requires more discussion. We have included some resources linked in the description below to help people journeying towards fulfilling God's mission of spreading righteousness and justice. If after hearing this message, you feel the need to talk to someone, please text the number on the screen. If you're interested in joining a virtual group conversation about ways that we can come together as a community and bring about change, healing, and justice, text the word justice to this number. We really miss coming together as a community. We are excited to announce that we will be back in person beginning June 21st. We can't wait to see you. We would like to thank you for your generosity and faithfulness in giving during this season. It's because of you that we are able to help others experience the love of God. You may continue to give online through our app or by mail. We love you. See you online next week.